0: There are in me right now some very deep emotions, and I can't really go any farther without sort of letting some of them out. Um, Linnea's last song touched one of them. I have four sons, and three of them are more or less on the mission field right now. 17 year old and a 14 year old and a 10 year old one in Florida one in Papua New Guinea and one of them on the way to Chicago from Minneapolis tomorrow and for a father to have four sons three of whom have a heart for missions is a powerful thing Man. number two is I attended my wife's seminar today and it was good <laughs> and I'm so thankful that I married Noel Met her right here on this campus, 1966, which leads me to the third emotion. The last time I stood on this platform lowered about 24 inches like it is, only stood here once before like this behind this pulpit, was I believe the summer of 1965. I was just finishing my freshman year here and I was taking speech in the summer school quickie program because up until that time in my life I could not speak in public during high school and junior high school I refused every office because you had to give speeches you know and I took C's in my civics classes because I would not give oral book reports And I couldn't. My throat clamped up. My knees shook. I became virtually paralyzed in front of any group bigger than my family. That summer, everybody had to take speech in those days. And so I said, I'll take it in the quickie because there are only about 10 or 13 people in the class. And I told speeches about barbells and things like that. And it was fun. And I squeaked through Chaplain Evan Welch toward the end of that time invited me to pray behind this pulpit before 500 people God had been good to me in that speech class. I Couldn't say no I Said yes And then I went out on front campus over there and I got out on my face and I said "God, I can't But I'm going to. And here's the promise I'll make. I'll make a deal with you. This is dangerous business now. But I commend it to you. I said, I'll make a deal with you. If you get me through those 30 seconds in a group just about this size, in this pulpit, in this very spot, 25 years ago, I will never, ever Say no to a speaking opportunity again out of fear. And God got me through. And I don't think I have let him down on that vow. So I stand here really full tonight. As a living testimony that God answers prayer. And wins great victories. So I'd like to pray one more time before I speak. Thank you so much, Father, for saving my soul. And then for saving me from a life that could have been so different than it has proved to be. By answering prayers 25 years ago in this very spot. I bless your name. I exalt you. I honor you, I glorify you, I long to spend my days heralding the assured triumph of the gospel in this world and your glory through it. And now I pray for this moment. These people are tired, they've been saturated with good things, but you are so strong. Come Holy Spirit, come. And grant that the veil be lifted and that we have eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of the Lord and His Word. Grant that there would be anointing upon me, I pray, and that I would only speak the truth, that the evil one would be bound and that your name would be lifted high, that faith would be strengthened, that churches would be made alive, And that people would become men and women of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that God in His all-encompassing foreknowledge and in His infinite wisdom has ordained to respond to the pleading of his people, and to perform through their prayers great triumphs in the world. God has decreed to make your prayers the cause of his triumph in many battles. And I want to demonstrate that to you, first of all, from a biblical text. Therefore, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 36 and 37. Now, I'm going to tell this story in my own words. So, you're going to be frustrated and I'm going to be frustrated if you try to follow in these two chapters. I'm going to sum up these two chapters in my own words. But when I get to key verses... I will direct your attention to those verses because it's crucial that you see God said it, not I. The story is a familiar one. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, that great, godless, arrogant king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And left Jerusalem isolated before hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers. And all that was left in Jerusalem was a fearful people, the prophet Isaiah, and a praying king. Outside the city, the Rabshika... The emissary from the king took his stand on the road leading from the conduit there up to the fuller's field and he shouted to them and mocked the living God. He said, if you think you can get help from Egypt, it's going to be like leaning on a reed. It'll pierce your hand. He said, look. We've got 2,000 extra horses. We'll give them to you if you can just put men on them tomorrow morning. He said, your God can't deliver you because what God has delivered any of the peoples that Sennacherib has attacked. And then finally he said, we're going to starve you till you eat your own dung and drink your urine. Eliakim was listening to this, the king's steward, and he went back to the king and he said, King, this is what they said. And Hezekiah ripped his clothes, went to the house of the Lord, and sent to Isaiah to pray. And immediately Isaiah sends word, the Lord will put within his mind a rumor, and he will leave Lachish, return and fight on another front. And It happened but it didn't happen for long because as soon as the rob shekha found out that's what happened he reversed the strategy he sent a letter to hezekiah and he said don't you think that you can escape we are going to destroy you root and branch and this time hezekiah went up to the lord in his house he laid the letter before the lord he didn't call for isaiah he prayed Now, I want you to read the prayer with me. Look at the prayer as I read it. It's verses 14 to 20 of chapter 37 of Isaiah. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, spread Sennacherib's letter before God and said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you alone are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Of a truth, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Now, as soon as Hezekiah had finished praying, before sending word to Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah in answer to this prayer. And the answer given was this. First, verse 21. I'm going to skip around here and just pick the high points of the answer. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Note these words. Because you have prayed to me. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning Sennacherib. And here's what he says to Sennacherib, verse 29. Because you have raged against me, and your arrogance has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way which you came. Verse 32. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. For the sake of my servant David. And then God, with the sovereign creator rights that only He has, killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and their bodies were strewn in the plains of Judah. Now think of it. Mark these words. Verse 21, because you have prayed, I killed 125, 185,000 men. Let that sink in just a minute. Just let that sink in. Because you prayed, A 25-second prayer, I slew 185,000 human beings created in my image. That's not all. The sons of Sennacherib, according to, I think, verse 30, I don't know the verse, The sons of Sennacherib slew Sennacherib in the house of his God, Nimroch, Because you prayed, Hezekiah, the most powerful king on the face of the earth is gone. Not just gone from your doorstep, gone from the stage of world history. Because you prayed like a dandelion. In the puff of your prayer. He's gone. And thirdly. Because you prayed Hezekiah. My covenant love for David. And my zeal for my own name. Has spread to all the nations. Now if this were the only story in all the Bible. It would be. An irrefutable truth that God in His all-encompassing foreknowledge and His infinite wisdom has ordained to respond to the pleading of His people and to make their prayers the occasion of unbelievable triumphs. But it's not the only story in the Bible. I want to tell you one more. Uh, My son Benjamin is 14, and I think he's in Papua New Guinea right now. For two weeks, he was at boot camp at Teen Mission International in Merritt Island, Florida. And then he got on a plane and flew to Sydney. And from there he flew to Port Moresby. And from there he flew to... We walk, and from there he took a truck to Pogwe, and from there he took a canoe to Hound a village, I think. But he stopped in L.A., and he called us. Now, my wife and I had been reading Ezra and Nehemiah for our evening devotions, and that preceding evening we had read Ezra chapter 8, and... That was of the Lord because it gave me what I needed to give one lasting incentive to Benjamin to have a passion for prayer in his mission. You know, the story, perhaps I said, Benjamin. When Ezra set out from Babylon, you remember to take the pilgrims back and build up Zion, which is what you're about in a way this summer. It says he was ashamed to ask King Artaxerxes for a bodyguard and for a squadron of soldiers to protect him because he had said, everyone who seeks the Lord, the good hand of God is upon him. And the power of God's wrath is against all those who forsake him. And Benjamin, instead of asking for a bodyguard, he called his people to pray and fast. And the answer was given like this. The Lord listened to our entreaty. The hand of our God was upon us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, by the way. So, Benjamin, you're a missionary this summer. And I didn't hire any bodyguards. I have no military escort to get you safely to Hound a village and back halfway around the world. But, son... You and I know after 14 years together, those who seek the Lord have the good hand of God upon them. And those who forsake him, Benjamin, have omnipotent wrath against them. You're in good hands. And we prayed. And I anticipate stories of great triumphs in Papua New Guinea at the end of August. Now whether it is the slaying of 185,000 Assyrian soldiers or whether it is the care for a 14-year-old boy in Papua New Guinea, the point is sure. God, in his all-encompassing foreknowledge and in his infinite wisdom, has ordained to respond to the pleading of his people And to perform great triumphs through their prayers. He has decreed to make the prayers of his people the cause of his triumph. In many battles. Now, my question. Is this. And it's my second point. You've heard the first point three times. My second point comes in answer to this question, and I only have two points. What would move more people to pray about battles in world evangelization the way Hezekiah prayed? What would move you and your church and your children and your pastors to pray the way Hezekiah prayed about the battles of world evangelization the way Hezekiah prayed. My answer is this. People will pray about the warfare of world evangelization the way Hezekiah prayed when they are filled with a vision of God's inevitable triumph in world evangelization. Let me say that again. You will find yourself bestirred by God to pray the way Hezekiah prayed for battles in world evangelization. When you are filled with a vision of the inevitability of God's triumph in world evangelization. I want to show you that first from Hezekiah's prayer. Verse 16 of Isaiah 37 Notice, God is the Lord of hosts. Second, He is enthroned above the cherubim. Third, He is God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Fourth, He made everything. The point is clear. He can't be defeated. You can't beat a God like that. His cause cannot be thwarted. He cannot be defeated. That's why I speak of the inevitability of the triumph of world evangelization. If world evangelization has been purposed by God, it will happen. It's going to happen if every one of you became apostate and refused to have any part in it. It will happen and you will be left out of the glory. Now, the most important book that was written on prayer, I believe, in the 1980s was this book. Operation World. I was glad to see how big the pile of them was at the bookstore. I hope I can get all of you to buy it. I believe it was the most important book written In that decade, maybe the most important book written on prayer this century. I do not believe it is an accident that within four years of the publication of the 1986 edition of this book, God turned Eastern Europe upside down. That's no accident. Heaven alone will record the correlation between the movement of prayer for the USSR and the Eastern Bloc and the events of last year. Heaven alone will record that. And I do believe there are millions of video cameras in heaven. Which we will spend an eternity watching. And the way it works is like this. I don't know how else God could do it, but without video cameras. But here's the way he's doing it or something better. Here you have a saint praying and one video camera with the sound on the on the saint in the closet where nobody else now is watching, just like Jesus said. And he's praying and the video camera for the library of heaven is being taped. And over here in Romania, you have a leader. asleep, And suddenly wakes up. And a new thought is in his mind, a new idea, a different inclination. Now, there are millions of such correlations happening. Even as I preach right now. Some of you are praying about things. You will not see the answer until you watch those videos in heaven. Forever and ever we'll enjoy these things. God has done. And I believe that before this decade is over, owing to books like this and the movements of prayer that are being born, we are going to see unprecedented breakthroughs in Albania and Mongolia and North Korea and Campuchia and Cuba and the Muslim nations, even in the North African and Middle Eastern sphere. I remember one of the sentences I said two years ago at the ACMC conference. It was one I felt was given of the Lord in that moment. It almost broke my voice. I hollered it so loud, I believe, because I was angry. I'm not quite as angry today because I'm sort of sitting back and saying, see. One of the things I said, and I'm going to say it again now with more composure, is this. Those people... Who project on straight line trajectories the inevitable increase of hard or limited access countries toward the end of this century do not, watch it here, do not reckon with the sovereignty and freedom of God the way they should. I was hearing all kinds of statistics two years ago. It will definitely be 80% closed countries, and it will definitely be X. And I just shouted, how do you know? And in the last two years, who would have predicted? Do you really believe God cannot turn Muslim countries upside down and open them for the gospel? Do you really believe that certain countries are so hard? Do you hear the words they used on the Urbana film? Hard, angry, 800 million Muslims, impossible. Not if God in... Answer to one man's 25 second prayer can kill one hundred and eighty five thousand people. Nothing is impossible to the praying church. Operation World. That's not the reason I brought this book up here was to say that it had had that kind of epic making effect. The reason I brought it up here was to call attention To the point I'm trying to make right now, namely that the seed bed of battle winning prayer like Hezekiah's is a soil of confidence in the inevitability of the triumph of God in world evangelization. That's the foundation of this book. Now, to prove it, let me read page 21. I'll bet some of you have it right there in your lap. I'm going to read. A paragraph from page 21. I've never met Patrick Johnstone, but I'm sure I would like him. He says, only Christ will open the seven seals, which are, I think we would all agree, whatever our eschatology, in some sense, the unfolding of history. Whether all of history or the end of the age. Doesn't really matter from my point. Here's what he says. Only the lamb could open the seals. All the earth-shaking, awesome forces unleashed on the world are released by the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns today. He is in the control room of the universe. He is the only ultimate cause. All the sins of man and machinations of Satan ultimately have to enhance the glory and kingdom of our Savior. This is true in our world today, in wars, famines, earthquakes, or the evil that apparently has the ascendancy. Now, I'm going to stop right there and break in on the paragraph to say. Neither Patrick Johnstone nor I says that glibly. As though we hadn't heard it three days ago. Thirty-nine children were crushed to death just north of Manila when their Christian school collapsed upon them caused by an earthquake caused by God. I mean, the Bible does predict that God will send earthquakes. You do believe God controls earthquakes, I hope. Neither Patrick Johnstone nor I says what he just said here glibly as though we did not humble ourselves with tears under the mysteries of tragedy. As though we could not empathize with those parents. As I was preparing this this afternoon, I just thought, no, what if I got a phone call tonight that my son Abraham, my most affectionate. Ten-year-old drowned in Merritt Island, Florida, as he was working in the swamps tonight. Or what if I received word that my 14-year-old got caught in tribal strife and was speared to death? Or what if I heard that as my 17-year-old heads for son life in Chicago tomorrow, he has a car accident like Steve Graby. The missionary kid and is killed on 94. or coming down would I say with such loud tones he is the only ultimate cause all the sins of man and the machinations of Satan ultimately have to enhance the glory in the kingdom of our Savior this is true in wars famines earthquakes and all apparently has ascendancy I think I would. I think I would. It's happened to me once. My mother was killed in Israel, and I got that phone call. I know by the grace of God what I would say, and it would not be Satan reigns. It would not be Satan reigns. I know who I'd ask to do the funerals to. He's sitting in the congregation here. Because I've heard him do great funerals of horrible deaths. My associate Tom Steller. So, the point is this. Underneath this great book and the prayers it is begetting is a rock-solid confidence that God reigns And that the triumph of the gospel in this world. Is inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. As I look around the country now. And watch the movement of prayer in the Twin Cities and just heard a great report from Denver this morning. I see it around the world. What I'm concluding. As a kind of subordinate confirmation of scripture is that people are praying warfare prayers like Hezekiah to bring down the victory of God in world evangelization wherever hope, did you catch the motif in Urbana? It's really everywhere you go today. Wherever strong, confident hope in the triumph The inevitable triumph of the gospel is uh, thriving. That's where prayers of this sort are being born and nurtured. I just find it again and again that the crown rights of King Jesus is the note that is being struck again and again and again where this kind of praying is happening around the country. And around the world. It's a kind of new thing today. That's why we have so many worship songs. You wonder what God's doing. Don't you. That the worship music today. Is of a different ilk. Than 20 years ago. Because in the whole movement. Of prayer and world evangelization renewal. There is the supremacy of God. And the kingly rights. Of Jesus being highlighted. Last night. Bill Waldrop said, vision is seeing, in your mind's eye, what ought to be and what can be. And passion, passion is the zeal or the devotion to serve that vision. And then he qualified himself. He said, there are people with evil vision. And he used the example of somebody who could see what they thought ought to be and could be, namely their pornographic magazine in every grocery store in America. And then a passion to fulfill that vision. And therefore, he qualified the definition of Christian vision like this. He said, it is driven by compelling convictions. Remember that phrase? which he simply meant truth, what ought to be in God's eyes. Now, as I reflected on the nature of vision and passion and prayer after that message last night, I thought to myself, I think I want to go a step further in distinguishing Christian vision from secular vision contradicting nothing but saying a mighty amen to everything I heard last night and taking it one step further, namely this. The difference between secular vision and Christian vision is that secular vision calls us to imagine a possibility and Christian vision calls us to believe a promise. Let me put it another way. Secular vision summons us to envision what could be if I worked hard enough. And Christian vision summons us to envision what will. I have the privilege, if I'm willing, of becoming a servant of what God is creating. Now, the profound difference then between secular vision and Christian vision is the difference between man's sovereignty and God's sovereignty. Secular vision calls us to the glory. Of creating something we've seen. And God calls us to something He's creating. You have been created by God's vision. You are the product of His vision and He will get the glory. Prayer that wins battles in world evangelization is flourishing today wherever vision of this sort is flourishing. That is, vision of what God most definitely is going to do. The inevitability of the triumph of world evangelization. Now, I get this from biblical prayers. I get it from a prayer awakening as I see it around the country, and I get it from my own personal experience, which I want to turn to at last and then close with an admonition. What I mean by my own personal experience is that I find in my own prayer life that a peculiar kind of text empowers my praying and stirs me up. I'm on a study leave from my church right now, and I'm, holed up in a little mobile study in Barnesville, Georgia, working on a book. But I try to devote extended time every morning to prayer and to meditation on the Word. They have nothing to do with my book directly. And morning after morning, the texts come. One of them that came recently was this one. Let me quote it for you. I'll tell you where it is. I don't want you all flipping through your Bible while I'm quoting this glorious word of God. This is the kind of text that begets a passion for prayer in my heart. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. That's Psalm 22, 27 and 28. Now, do you hear the logic of inevitability? Behind that text There's no if, ands, or buts In that text There's no, John, if you get serious and earnest God will finish the Great Commission God will finish the Great Commission I have the glory Or I can be left in the dust My prayers Ignite When I hear this logic Notice the three steps To Him Belongs, dominion, he rules over the nations, that's premise number one. Therefore, number two, all the ends of the earth. We'll remember and turn to the Lord. They cannot go on resisting indefinitely because dominion belongs to the Lord and He owns the world. He needs to have it back as the possession of His Son bought by His blood. Conclusion. Therefore, All the families of the nations will worship before Thee, O Lord, our sovereign God. Now, the very least, whatever your eschatology is. And let me put in a parenthesis here. I pray and ask the Lord, if you want me to say this, just bring it to my mind. Here it is. Parenthesis. Everybody 45 years and under, I'm 44. Everybody 45 years and under, it seems to me today, has no eschatology. And everybody over 45 is weary with debating it. That's bad news, folks. That's bad news. Now, I don't want to resurrect the divisiveness of pre and ah, uh, and post meal, and pre, and mid, and post trip. Don't want to resurrect the divisiveness, but listen. The Bible is full of truth about what's coming. I I disagree with my dad eschatologically, but oh, I'm so glad he believes something. Frankly, I think we need some eschatology. You'll end up, many of you, with a message like this tonight and saying, what in the Sam Hill does he believe about the future? Where does he stand? And that's all right, because I haven't written the book yet. (laughs) But it needs to be written. We need a non-divisive statement about whatever we believe. Now, the Puritans were driven. William Carey was driven and Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and Adoniram Judson were driven by post-millennialism. Christ owns the nations. He's going to take them to himself. He will reign and rule. And I thank God they were driven by whatever they had to be driven by. My guess is there's not 10 post-millennialists in this room. Maybe not 10 who know what it is. (laughs) I don't think we're the better for it. That's the end of my parenthesis. Some of you take me up. You write the books. I don't want to resurrect new divisive disputes. I don't think we should build denominations or institutions about our millennial or our tribulational view. All right? We shouldn't. But we ought to believe something. And preach it with love. Close parenthesis. I lost my place. Where am I here? Oh, yes. I was going to say, whatever that psalm means, Psalm 22, 27, and 28, it means at least the truth of Matthew 24, 14, and Revelation 5, 9. And in this group, many of you know those by heart. This gospel of the kingdom shall underline it, shall be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It will be done. And Revelation 5, 9. Worthy art thou, O Lord. To take and open the seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And hast made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. It is as good as done. Christian vision feeds battle-winning prayer. And Christian vision is not the envisioning of a possibility. It's the grasping of an inevitability. Now, let me close by just meditating very personally with you on that image. The grasping of an inevitability. Here's my picture of how the kingdom is working today. You all here today were created by the triumph of world evangelization. You don't have to make world evangelization triumph. You were made by the triumph of world evangelization. And you were created as though an electric current is now flowing in your body. You were made to reach out and take hold on triumph so that you flow between triumph and triumph as a conductor of triumphant grace. That's why you were created. But you know what has happened when the jolt of awakening has hit many people? Instead of reaching out for that live wire of the inevitable triumph of God, which would enable a spiritual dynamic to flow through them like they've never had before. You know what they've done with their hands? These live wire hands, they've sunk them in the ground of worldly things. And the current has simply run on to find another. And so I want to close with a plea tonight. I want to plead with you to take your hands, your wires, out of the television. I'll tell you why I put television at the top of my list here in my little practical plea tonight. I don't own a television, and I haven't for 20 years. I'm on vacation. My in-laws have a television. We watch Andy Griffith every night on TBN, I believe it is, Channel 17 in Barnesville, Georgia. There are, I believe, commercials twice. Twice. Sixteen of them, eight each break. I sit and I watch and I analyze as a pastor because now I get on vacation a chance to see what my people do. I don't watch television ever, except on vacation. I watch them and I say, this is what's happening all week long to my people between my efforts to create passion for god it'll never work and then i have to preach myself oh but the reason i feel so threatened by this in my weakness is because i don't think anybody can watch 16 minutes of hard hitting Slick, sexy, subtle commercials without having the passion of God drained out of them. I don't think it can be done. Not to mention if you watch maybe... Two or three hours of television, and that means what? Sixteen or eighteen, five to eight minute spots, each having five to eight slick, sexy, subtle commercials. And you know what's so bad about them? It's not so much the sex. Though that, for me, a male, is the problem. They're always sowing thoughts, lustful thoughts, asking me to do what Jesus said I better pluck out my eye to have not happened to me. They're constantly doing what Jesus said. Lop off your hands before you let that happen. Pluck out your eye. That's not the main thing. You know what the main thing is? Incessant banality. Incessant silliness. Incessant emptiness. So that you really do begin to think that pop. Is where it's at. <laughs> or a car. Or a vacation. Or a home. Or a family. Or food. You really do begin to feel without even knowing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where it's at. And you're dead. Because the greatest realities in the world are just being smothered. So my plea is first, just get your hands out of the television. If there's a program worth watching, it's worth standing by the on and off switch at commercial time. And just cutting them off. That's devastating to the whole industry, isn't it? And then let me just say, take your hands out of money. Take your hands out of the ground of food and clothing and home remodeling. Oh, I love the way Bill Waldrop ended last night. How are you going to invest your life? How are you going to invest your life? The current of God's triumph flows in, jolts you awake, and you've got this choice. Will I take hold of the other end of the wire from triumph to triumph and become the living conduit of a force that will give life to me, life to my prayers, life to my church, or will I sink my hands in the ground Of the things of this world. I just plead with you. Believe. In the triumph. Of world evangelization. And you will pray like Hezekiah. Let's pray. Oh father in heaven. As we close now and walk out of here. Please don't let this be in vain. Beget fresh faith. Forbid that we would think like the world thinks. Namely, that vision is the seeing of a possibility instead of the grasping of an inevitability. Flow with your inevitable triumph into the hearts of these people tonight and get victory over their fear, get victory over their discouragements, get victory over their failures, get victory over their weariness, get victory over everything that would hinder their Hezekiah-like praying. And let there flow out from this meeting tonight a great wave of triumphant intercession. Thank you, Father, that you have ordained to respond to the pleading of your people. And that you have decreed to make our prayers the cause of your triumph in many battles. And all the people said, Amen.